0: How humanitarian pauses would work, we've got to answer those questions, we're working on exactly that. The U.S.'s top diplomat is urging Israel to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. But stop short of supporting a ceasefire. For Sunday, November 5th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Ma. Coming up, we report on Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with the President of the Palestinian Authority. Later, updates on the civil fraud case against former President Donald Trump.
1: His political legacy depends on the story of a mogul, an outsider, who shook up New York and shook up 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And it's been
0: 30 years since the release of the seminal rap album Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers.
2: We can't underrate the importance of martial arts and films and what they did for these youth like RZA to kind of reimagine their worlds. Now news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made an unannounced visit to Iraq today as part of a diplomatic trip to the Middle East. Blinken met with the Iraqi Prime Minister in Baghdad and later received a security briefing at the American Embassy.
0: As you know, there have been a series of attacks conducted by militia directed at our personnel, both in Iraq uh, as well as in, in Syria. Uh, Job number one for me is to ensure the security of our people, to make sure that our personnel uh, are safe and secure.
3: Blinken's trip comes amid growing calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, but he says the Biden administration is working with Israel for more limited humanitarian pauses. Russia says it successfully test-launched a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile from a submarine in waters in the country's far north. NPR's Charles Maines reports the test comes as Russia continues to flex its nuclear muscle amid soaring tensions with the West over Ukraine.
4: According to Russia's defense ministry, its new nuclear-powered submarine, Emperor Alexander III, launched a Belovik ballistic missile from an undisclosed location in the White Sea, striking its intended target in the far eastern Kamchatka Peninsula more than 3,000 miles away. The test is the latest in a series of Russian nuclear maneuvers that appear aimed at pressuring the U.S. and its allies to limit military support for Ukraine. The launch also comes amid growing concerns of a new nuclear arms race. This week, Russian President Vladimir Putin formally withdrew ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, arguing the move put Russia on par with the U.S. in observing, but not formally ratifying, the agreement. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
3: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to pick up a key endorsement as he seeks the Republican presidential nomination. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will officially back him during an event in Des Moines tomorrow night. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports the state is the first in the nation voting contest for the GOP primary.
2: A source familiar with the matter confirms Governor Kim Reynolds' plans to endorse Ron DeSantis. Reynolds has remained neutral as Republican presidential hopefuls have been visiting the state throughout the year, but she regularly signaled she wouldn't rule out an endorsement. Reynolds has appeared numerous times with DeSantis as he works to visit all of Iowa's 99 counties ahead of the January 15th caucuses. The two handily won re-election in their respective states in last year's midterm, when Republicans nationally did not do as well as they'd hoped. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump's campaign put out a release following the news, saying Reynolds has apparently, quote, begun her retirement tour early, as she clearly does not have any ambition for higher office. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
3: This is NPR.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Karpilio in Boston. There are just 77 spots left in the state's shelter system. Once those are filled, eligible homeless families will be placed on a wait list. The state is hoping the federal government will establish a large site for wait families until alternate housing becomes available. The shelter population in Massachusetts has more than doubled in the past year and the state-funded system is running out of space and money. A Plymouth family stuck in Gaza amid escalating violence in that region has been unable to cross the border into Egypt because of a customs error. A relative of the family told WBUR that the three children's names were not on a list of people permitted to leave Gaza, so the family stayed behind until the mix-up is resolved. Well, Daylight Savings Time, as you know, ended at 2 a.m., and this transition typically means an increase in car crashes in Massachusetts. Mark Shieldrop, a spokesperson for AAA Northeast, says it's especially dangerous as most people drive home from work.
6: According to state crash data, there's a 51 percent increase in crashes in that 5 p.m. hour here in Massachusetts. And the danger is especially concerning for pedestrians. In that same hour, we see a 240% increase in pedestrian crashes.
5: Shield Drop says it's important to make sure you get enough sleep as your body adjusts to the time change. He also says it's important to make sure your car's headlights are working properly and that your windshield is clean, both inside and out. A Kingston man is facing multiple charges for possession of a fully operational semi-automatic rifle and gun parts made from a 3d printer charles santos was arrested yesterday as the result of an investigation and court authorized search warrant police said he'll be arraigned tomorrow in plymouth district court the patriots lost to washington this afternoon in foxborough final score 20 to 17 new england's record now drops to two and seven increasing clouds 30s overnight mostly cloudy low 50s tomorrow 55 in Boston.
7: WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org.
5: Agari made this announcement.
0: U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is crisscrossing the Middle East in the latest round of U.S. diplomatic efforts in the region. On Sunday, he met in Ramallah with the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. Abbas urged Blinken to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Secretary Blinken responded that a ceasefire would only benefit the militant group Hamas. But he said the U.S. is urging Israel to pause its assault in certain areas to allow humanitarian aid through. This is a process. Israel's raised important questions about uh, how humanitarian pauses would work, We've got to answer those questions. We're working on exactly that. It's been nearly a month since Israeli airstrikes began in Gaza, strikes that were in response to a cross-border attack by Hamas, which killed roughly 1,400 Israelis. Since then, the Palestinian health ministry says the death toll in Gaza has reached 9,700 people. NPR State Department correspondent Michelle Kelleman has been following the Secretary of State's progress across the region, and she joins me now. Hi, Michelle.
8: Hi there, Adrian.
0: Michelle, what can you tell us about the Secretary's meeting in Ramallah with President Abbas.
8: So a State Department official who's traveling with Blinken told reporters that there were a couple of reasons for going there. Blinken wanted to tell Abbas about his conversations with Israeli officials about Jewish settler violence in the West Bank. He's asked Israel to rein that in and to hold to account um, any Israelis who have attacked and killed Palestinians. He's also pushing the Israeli government to release tax revenue that Israel has withheld from the Palestinian Authority. Um Now, you know, that's money to pay, for example, for Palestinian police in the West Bank, the people who are trying to keep things stable there. Another big theme for Blinken is the uh, US efforts to get more aid into Gaza. And Blinken is trying to get the region to think more about the future, to keep alive a hope of a Palestinian state one day. Abbas made clear that Gaza has to be part of that.
0: Michelle, uh, so can you expand on that a little more? like? What else is Blinken suggesting could be in a post-war future for Gaza? Like, what else is he asking of Israel's Middle Eastern neighbors?
8: Yeah, I mean, he's making clear that there's no way to go back to pre-October 7th status quo. That is, Hamas can't control the Gaza Strip. He says that would be untenable for Israel. But the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is weak, and officials say His talks with Abbas kind of touched on this issue, but they didn't spend a whole lot of time with this, because Abbas and all the other Arab leaders that Blinken met over the weekend say what's really needed now is a ceasefire. They say that this is not about Israel's self-defense. They call this collective punishment against Palestinians, and they're warning that this is generating so much hatred in the region that that hatred could last for generations.
0: I mean, we've been hearing the word ceasefire, uh, you know, for many protesters this weekend, too. But the Biden administration has stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. So what is Secretary Blinken saying about that?
8: Yeah, he's talking about humanitarian pauses for enough time to get more aid into Gaza and longer if they can get hostages out. Remember, there were two American hostages released as part of negotiations mediated by Qatar. A White House official says they're trying to replicate that on a larger scale, but that would require a longer pause in the fighting if it is at all possible. So that's another big challenge for Blinken.
0: NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Former President Trump is facing multiple charges in multiple states, and this past week, all eyes were on a courtroom in New York. That's because two of his sons, Eric and Donald Jr, testified in the civil fraud trial there. Now, at the heart of this case, it involves inflated financial statements, which both brothers deny being involved in. And like their father, the brothers are also defendants in the case. Each week, we're taking a few minutes to talk through significant developments in the former president's trial. And this week, my colleague, Scott Detrow, was joined by two guests. NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, and New York University law professor, Melissa Murray, who's co-author of an upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. The trio started off by digging into what stood out about the Trump brothers as as witnesses.
9: Well, I mean, the fact is we have these two sons, nobody who's taking responsibility (laughs) for any of what the Trump organization has been accused of. And. You know, not only accused of but found guilty yeah. of when it comes to fraud, for example, and their names and fingerprints are all over uh, you know the emails and yet nobody taking any kind of responsibility with any of that. Melissa,
6: what did you make of this from a legal perspective? this general argument from both sons that the the financial documents in question were just something that was not on their radar that they were not in the weeds of these that you can't really held them responsible for for the potential fraud in these documents.
1: Both sons essentially said that while they were running this business in their father's stead, they were effectively paper pushers. Um, they had these appraisals. The appraisals were done by the accounting firm and they merely signed off on it. And that is perhaps a little surprising Um For publicly traded companies, most people who are running these companies have to sign off that they have done their due diligence in reviewing these accounting statements and that they are basically attesting to the validity and accuracy of those statements. And although it is not required of privately held companies like the Trump Organization, it's basically become a feature of corporate governance now that all corporations kind of abide by the same set of rules, that when you have these statements, you verify them, you look at them, you don't simply sign off on them because someone else did it.
6: So generally speaking then, there was a repeated theme of, yes, I was on that call, yes, I was on that email, but I had, I had so many other things going on that it did not register to me, I was not in the weeds on that. Is that, generally speaking, not an argument that holds up legally?
1: Eric Trump, I think, was most explicit about distancing himself in this way. And he was like, you know, I'm a construction guy. I run projects, I deal in concrete. I'm not the guy digging into valuations. I rely on the accountants for that. And when you're the person at the head of the organization and you're signing off on these statements about how you're valuing things, how you're accounting for the funds going in and out of your corporation, you kind of do have to be that details guy.
9: I also think it's interesting because during the trial, you had the Trump Organization controller, Jeff McConaughey, testifying that Eric essentially directed him to make decisions that led to these inflated values. So, you know, and you have Eric then denying that he really was paying that close attention. And it's like, you know, a, a ghost came down and made these decisions when you've really got this trend over time within the Trump organization and somebody's calling the shots. How
6: do you think of testimony differently when you know that it's a judge who's 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 absorbing it and making a decision, and not and not a jury who probably does not have, even though they're going to get the context in the case, the legal and financial uh, framework for the level of detail that we're talking about here.
1: So bench trials are very different from jury trials. Um, you know, the jury, there's a lot of emotion that may go into the way a case is presented. Um, you're meant to create a narrative, tell a story here. There is a story to be told, but it's to a very savvy, very teched up audience. Um, Judge Engeron knows what the statutes are. He will have a good grasp of what's happening in the courtroom and what's required in order for the government to establish its case. And again, this is a civil case. so The government only needs to establish their case by a preponderance of the evidence. It's a much lower standard than reasonable doubt that's available in criminal cases.
6: I wanted to shift gears to talk about next week. The big news will be Donald Trump testifying. Domenico, we have had countless numbers of depositions that Trump has sat for over the years. Do you have a sense of what the pattern has been, how Donald Trump conducts himself on the witness stand under oath compared to how he conducts himself running for president?
9: far more sober on the witness stand and under oath because there are real penalties that come with lying under oath. There's no penalty for lying just generally out in public uh, talking to people or running a political campaign. Uh, there are real penalties if you perjure yourself. But the fact that his organization, the place with his name on it, is being essentially threatened to go into extinction after you know, growing up in Queens and every, anybody who's grown up in Queens, uh, yours truly, uh, knows that the way to make it, quote-unquote, is to say that you made it in the city. That
1: the Wait, city... Domenico,
9: you're from Queens? <laughs>
6: I had no idea. I <laughs> had no
9: idea, I know. <laughs>
6: um, oh,
1: can, can I add something to that, Yes, you, are you yeah. from Queens, though? I'm Melissa? not from Queens, I'm from Okay, but you can, there you go, um, that's okay. Brooklyn, Brooklyn. We, we same the, idea, BQE same, same BQE vibe. Going on. Yeah.
6: So Miles Morales, <laughs> Peter Parker, divide here. Go ahead, Melissa.
1: His political future, his political past, his political legacy kind of depends on the story of a mogul, an outsider who shook up New York and then went and shook up 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue.
6: One last question to both of you. And Melissa, I'll start with you. What was your big takeaway from this week?
1: I think the Trump team knows that they're on the ropes with some of this testimony. And, you know, if the law's not on your side, go to the facts. If the facts aren't on your side, go to the law. And if neither is on your side, pound the table and make some noise.
9: Yeah, I really think that uh, the big thing here is perception, right? I mean, this is about politics for the former president. It's also about his business substantively. But if he can convince his base that he still didn't do anything wrong and this is all just a quote unquote witch hunt, then he still has a strong political chance of being the Republican nominee. But if it starts to be able to creep in as that he actually did do something wrong, and it starts to seep into the consciousness of the Republican base that maybe he's not going to be the strongest candidate in a general election, then that could be a real problem for him. And you have candidates on the Republican side, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who this week said that a conviction would be, quote unquote, fatal for uh, former President Trump if he were to run in a general election.
6: That is senior political editor and correspondent and perpetual Queens native, Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico. (laughs) I don't think you can change
10: that. (laughs) We've
6: also been joined by Melissa Murray, uh, New York University law professor and co-author
0: of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. Thanks to you, too. Thank you. Scott and his panel will be back again next week with the latest on Trump's trials. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Karpilio. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
5: New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space this Tuesday, November 7th to discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Tickets at WBUR.org events.
11: WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting the enigmatic, improvisatory White Rabbit, Red Rabbit,
3: with different actors every performance, through November 12th. The UmbrellaArts.org. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The Israeli military says it gave civilians in Gaza a four-hour window today to move south. Israel has been ramping up its ground offensive in Gaza City and the Northern Strip. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made an unannounced visit to Iraq today. During his visit, he met with the Iraqi prime minister in Baghdad. He also visited the American embassy, where he received a security briefing on the threat to U.S. facilities. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to endorse Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the Iowa caucus. The state is the first in the nation contest for the Republican presidential primary. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Wilderness. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
0: From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Ma. Now, it goes without saying that buying a home for most people can be uh, super duper expensive, but selling a home can be expensive too. And that's in part because of real estate agent fees. These commissions agents collect when a home gets sold. Now, depending on the price of a home, these fees can run tens of thousands of dollars. And that is why a group of Missouri home sellers brought a class action lawsuit against the National Association of Realtors recently. They argued that these fees hurt consumers by artificially inflating home prices. And this past week, a federal jury agreed. They awarded the home sellers $1.8 billion. And this decision could upend the real estate industry. My colleague Waylon Wong from NPR's Indicator podcast helps me explain.
10: A couple of years ago, Nick Krauss and his wife were looking to buy their first home.
0: How much did you know about the home buying process before going into it? Basically nothing. Yeah, I knew I knew vaguely what a mortgage was. We watched some, like, you know, Instagram reels and some YouTube videos about, like, what to look for (laughs) in visiting homes and stuff like that.
10: That doesn't sound like nothing to me. No, I mean, it sounds like he really did his research. (laughs) Where else are you supposed to turn for information? (laughs) So, like, almost 90% of people who buy homes nowadays, Nick and his wife decided to enlist the help of a real estate agent. Someone to help them scope out properties, set up walkthroughs, negotiate the sale, and handle the contracts.
0: And despite doing all this work... Nick and his wife were a little surprised that their agent didn't charge them a dime. I think she just kind of mentioned that they would get paid by the seller. We didn't have to worry about it. Do you think it's weird that the seller pays your agent? Because the buyer's agent is supposed to represent the buyer's interest, but the seller is the one who pays your (laughs) agent. (laughs) I did, yeah. Um, Not gonna complain.
10: Nick is not complaining, but this detail is at the heart of the lawsuit.
0: Real estate agents typically work on commission. That means when they help buy or sell a home, they get a percentage of the final sale price, traditionally 5 or
10: 6%. And as Nick learned, the home buyer is not on the hook for this. Typically, it's the person selling the home who agrees to pay both agents. This is called an offer of compensation.
0: This offer of compensation is a practice that goes back more than 100 years. So back then, before the Internet made it possible for all of us to browse real estate listings from the comfort of our couch or toilet. T-M-I, Adrian. Oh, go ahead. Pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, they didn't really have this option, right? There wasn't a central place to view all the properties for sale in a given area. Then in the late 1800s, a bunch of real estate agents got together and were like, wouldn't it be easier if we like pooled our listings And this led to the creation of something called the Multiple Listing Service, or MLS.
10: And to encourage deal making, they came up with a rule. Anyone using the MLS to list a property for sale had to offer a commission to the agent who brings them a buyer. This is a financial incentive that says, if you help me sell my listings, I'll help you sell yours. You scratch my back,
0: I scratch yours.
10: This practice is that offer of compensation, and it continues to this day. Now, offer of compensation,
0: it sounds relatively neutral, right? But critics of this practice have a different way of describing it. It's a conflict of interest. Steve Brobeck is a senior fellow at a watchdog group called the Consumer Federation of America. Ask anyone, do you think it's
13: fair or makes sense for the seller to pay the buyer agent commission?
0: Steve says he agrees with the plaintiffs who sued the National Association of Realtors. He says having sellers pay agents on both sides of the deal is not great for sellers or buyers.
13: The compensation is all out of whack with the value that the consumers receive.
10: Steve says this practice hurts sellers who probably don't want to be paying thousands of dollars in fees to the buyer's agent. He also argues it's bad for home buyers, even if the buyer isn't directly footing the bill.
13: The fact is that today that buyer commission is added to the sale price in most cases the industry generally agrees that that's what happens and academic research has shown so effectively the buyers end up paying the commission they just can't negotiate it they have no control over it in a free market buyers would be able to negotiate their commissions they can't right now
0: now technically it is possible for a prospective home buyer to try and negotiate with their agent But in the vast majority of cases, it's sort of irrelevant because the seller has listed a property on one of those multiple listing services, which means the seller has likely already offered to pay the buyer's agent, that compensation offer we talked about. And Steve says from his research in dozens of cities, the size of this fee doesn't seem to vary much. When the seller
13: asks the listing agent, well, why do I have to pay the buyer agent. Shouldn't the buyer pay the buyer agent's commission? And the response is, this is the way the system works. And in order for your house to be shown, you need to offer
0: the going rate, which is, depending on the area, two and a half to
13: 3%.
0: One more concern Steve has with the current system is that it might encourage certain buyer's agents to nudge their clients to certain listings with juicier commissions. So what does Steve think should be done to make the system more fair for buyers and sellers? One way to do this, he says, is through something called decoupling. That's where sellers and buyers are responsible for paying their own agents directly. And decoupling is one possible outcome of the litigation that's facing the industry.
10: Now, if that happens, the theory goes buyers will be more likely to shop around and competition among agents will drive down commissions from 5 to 6% to something like 3 to 4%. That could be a difference of thousands of dollars per sale. It could also bring commissions closer to what they are in countries like the U.K. or Australia, which hover around 2%.
0: As you can imagine, a lot of folks who work in the real estate business disagree. They say decoupling would have a negative impact for consumers.
9: And one of those people is Ron Phipps. The impact of decoupling the fee means some buyers will be eliminated from the market. A lot of buyers don't have additional cash. They don't have the extra money to go ahead and proceed. Ron's a
0: real estate agent in Rhode Island and also a former president of the National Association of Realtors. He's especially talking about first-time home buyers who are often having to scrape together the cash just for a down payment. Ron says forcing them to pay for an
9: agent just puts another financial obstacle in their way. On the macro level, the disparity of wealth between homeowners and non-homeowners is going to grow even more.
10: And sure, he says people always have the option of not using a real estate agent to buy a home. But there's a reason close to 90 percent of people use an agent. The home buying process is complicated. Ron says a good agent can help buyers spot potential problems with the property and avoid costly mistakes.
9: The fact of the matter is if a buyer doesn't have representation in the transaction, their risk is significant.
0: And as to the claim that some agents might be pushing their clients to listings with better commissions without them knowing, Ron says the Realtors Association actually has rules against this sort of conduct. And he also says agents who are just out there chasing commissions don't tend to last
9: in the business. The best agents, the majority of agents in the United States, those great realtors are not transactional. If the consumers don't value what I'm providing, they're not going to hire me. If I can't get listings, if I can't get buyers, they're not going to pay me anything.
10: Nick, our first-time home buyer, says their realtor really helped them out. But if he'd been forced to pay them directly, he may have had second thoughts.
0: Houses are expensive. <laughs> uh, and yeah, if you're just adding to the pile of cash that you need up front, or even upon closing, I mean, you like empty out your resources. So I think that that is the value of the current system is it was one less thing for us to worry about? Of course, the plaintiffs who won that class action lawsuit, they would probably say that Nick and his wife did pay for their agent. It was just baked into the sale price. The industry, by the way, is appealing that verdict, but there may be more legal headaches coming. The US Justice Department is reportedly considering its own case targeting real estate agent fees. Once upon a time in a land called Staten Island lived a group of young boys. Growing up, life was not easy for them. They faced poverty, violence, and racism. But as these boys grew into men, they came to call their home Shaolin, and they would band together to form a musical brotherhood, a clan, if you will, with nine distinct members. The RZA, the Jizza, ODB, Method Man, Ghostface Killa, Raekwon the Chef, the Deck, Yu God, and Mastakilla. And together, they formed the Wu-Tang Clan. And their first album, Enter the Wu Tang 36 Chambers, released 30 years ago this week, is still considered one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. So, to talk with us about the impact and influences of this album, we're joined by Marcus Evans. He's a PhD student at McMaster University currently writing his dissertation on Wu-Tang Clan and the influence of martial arts films on the music. Marcus, you're literally a Wu-Tang scholar. So
2: thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Adrian. It's an honor to be here.
0: So we'll come back to your scholarship on sort of the relationship between this group and the Kung Fu cinema influence. But just to start, can you take us back to 1993, the year that Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers was released? What, at the time, is the landscape of hip-hop?
2: Sure. At the time of 1993, and I'm recalling this from the experience of being a young kid in Mississippi, but it seemed to me that West Coast gangster rap was really the dominant form. You know, I remember listening to Dr. Dre's The Chronic, Um, Snoop Doggy Dog's Doggy South, really this kind of gangster rap, this melodic form of rap, the kind of rap that made you want to get in a 64 Chevrolet Impala and just (laughs) ride out. The West Coast
0: sound is dominant, right? This sort of smooth, sparkly sound into that landscape drops, enter the Wu-Tang, and it's not smooth, it's like the opposite of smooth. It's like, (laughs) exactly. how would you describe it?
2: I mean, it was raw, gritty, Dirty and, and it was just radically different from all of the West Coast music that I was familiar with.
0: To understand the group, they decided to call themselves Wu-Tang. That name really stands out. So where for them does that come from? The desire to call themselves Wu Tang? I think that, you know, for Riza and for the Wu. Riza being the sort of the leader of the clan.
2: Yeah, he's the kind of de facto leader of the clan. For Riza and for the Wu Tang clan, watching these films gave them kind of images of other worlds of something that was totally different from the experiences that they had in north america in their urban environments and risa talks about this quite often you know he speaks about yo these films taught me something unique it showed me that there was a history broader than the history that i ever learned about being a black american in the united states right he says growing up as a kid as a black kid in america i was always taught in school that, you know, we had a slave history, right? So these Kung Fu films for him resonated with him in a way because they told him about a kind of alternate history of Asian people who were, in some cases, like Blacks, suffering oppression. So he found these kind of cross-cultural parallels there between the martial arts films and his own world. When you think about this album, like, where do you hear that martial arts influence The most. One, I think, just about the conceptualization of the album itself. Hmm. The album, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, of course, it borrows its title from at least two Kung Fu films. One is the Bruce Lee film, Enter the Dragon. What's your style? My style? You can call it the art of fighting without fighting. Also, the 36 Chamber of Shaolin. The second part of it really has to do with the sonic you know, style, the very first thing that we hear on the album is a sample that comes from the film that basically informed the whole mythology of the Wu-Tang Clan, this film called Shaolin and Wu-Tang, the film out of which they formed their identity as the Wu-Tang Clan. And so the first thing that we hear on the track when we put in that CD or that tape showing my age, we hear Shaolin and Wu-Tang, Shaolin shadow boxing in the Wu-Tang sword style. If what you say is true, then the Shaolin and the Wu-Tang is dangerous.
5: I'll let you
2: try my Wu-Tang style. And then we go into the song, Bring the Ruckus, to which that sample is attached. It's a song wherein the lyrics are all about lyrical martial arts, deadliness, dangerousness, head chopping. I mean, several of these tracks on the album are all in some ways appealing to a kind of form of martial arts that uh, that takes shapes in, in the lyricism that the Wu is doing.
0: Marcus Evans, thanks so much for joining us on All Things Considered, and uh, good luck on your dissertation defense.
2: Thank you, Adrian. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered on NPR News. The Paramount Plus anthology series, Lawmen, Bass Reeves, is out this Sunday with its first installment. It chronicles the adventures of one of the first black men to serve as a deputy U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says this program is a noble effort, which often struggles
4: to live up to the story of its legendary lead character. Lawman Bass Reeves should have started with a scene like this one, deep in the third episode, where Reeves is already a marshal taking a prisoner to jail when he gets in a deadly argument with the white man who is supposed to be his assistant, also known as a posse man, you think another white posse man's gonna ride out with you, help you like I have,
7: and now you gonna shoot me?
4: No, but they will. What follows is a gunfight with a gang trying to free the prisoner. Reeves, played by David Oyelowo, shows his courage and his dead aim with a firearm. But viewers won't see that for a while. Instead, the series begins 13 years earlier, when Reeves is an enslaved man working for an arrogant officer in the Confederate Army. The officer responds cruelly when Reeves asks if he can learn to read. i still like to learn, master, so I can study the Bible. The officer drops the n-word while telling him black people don't really go to heaven. If you're going anywhere, you're going to where there's nothing. Only white folks go to the big dance point. And later, the officer suggests they play a card game where the prize is Reeves' freedom. But when Reeves sees the officer cheat... I played a queen of hearts. I had it. There's only one queen of hearts in this deck. Reeves loses his temper...
7: And And
4: And beats his master severely, forcing Reeves to go on the run. This long preamble keeps us from what we really want to watch, our hero as a bold lawman, reenacting the triumphs of the real-life Bass Reeves, who reportedly arrested 3,000 criminals during the late 1800s. This series takes way too long to build his legend, showing how Reeves spent time living with Native Americans and then as a failed farmer before becoming a marshal, and yet we don't see other important moments from his past, like how he learned how to shoot and fight so well, or why he's so independent at a time when people of color were so oppressed. One hint we get is that he's devoutly religious, as he explains when another marshal, played by Dennis Quaid, needles him for his beliefs. You still believe in the Lord that let you spend half your life in chains? Man, man, those chains. It was God will give me the hope to believe in the future without them. Oyelowo plays Reeves as a man of few words with empathy for people of color, but his lack of words makes space for long speeches from know-it-all white guys played by ace character actors like Quaid and Donald Sutherland as the judge who hires him as a marshal.
7: I was encouraged to hire you for the color of your skin because the Indians would listen to someone like you, but that's not why I called you in. I need a man with
4: a good gun and a straight spine. You up for the task? I wouldn't be sitting here and my Sunday the best if I wouldn't. As a black man who loves westerns, I've complained for many years about the lack of a great film or TV show about Reeves, whose exploits some say inspired the fictional Lone Ranger character. But the four episodes of Paramount Plus' series I've seen so far fall short. Trying so hard to be a modern western epic, they often forget to be entertaining turning one of the Old West's most compelling figures into a virtuous cipher in the process. I'm Eric Deggins.
5: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour.
11: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
5: Following the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, people are asking familiar questions again. The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores guns, and the New England roots of guns in America. Find The Gun Machine on your podcast app.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, and a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, playing November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square
5: with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 540.
3: I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the occupied West Bank today. During his visit, he met with the president of the Palestinian Authority. He's also touring the region to discuss Israel's war against Hamas. Palestinian officials say dozens of people were killed after Israeli airstrikes hit a refugee camp in central Gaza. Meanwhile, communications in the region have been disrupted for a third time since the conflict broke out. Search and rescue efforts are underway after an earthquake struck northwest Nepal last night. Officials say at least 157 people were killed. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington.
12: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: It's it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. And now it's time for another edition of our series, Enlighten Me. And for that, let's kick things over to NPR's Rachel Martin.
11: I've got this small pile of rocks on my desk. They're smooth stones that I've picked up during vacations to various beaches over the years. For me, the stones are a reminder of things that are bigger than whatever daily stress is eating away at my psyche. A reminder that despite the chaos and trauma in this life, in this world, at this moment, it's all still ephemeral. The rocks stay. On top of this small assortment of rocks is a relatively new addition. It's a gold-plated medallion, about the size of a quarter. On one side, there's an engraved image of mushrooms and a kind of blessing may you remain aware of awareness a scientist named roland griffiths gave that medallion to me he and i talked back in april of this year as one of the first conversations in this series griffiths had spent the later stage of his career exploring the ways that psychedelic drugs specifically psilocybin could help patients with depression addiction issues and even terminal cancer then two years ago he himself was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer The doctor was now the patient and Griffiths was facing his own mortality. I was changed by the conversation I had with him. First of all, he was the person who finally convinced me to delve more deeply into meditation. It's a practice he credits with helping him navigate the closing chapter of his life. And that's the part that really struck me. How Griffiths was able to sit with his dying, or rather sit in his last months of living and let go of any fear or despair.
7: For me, the diagnosis, as unlikely as it seems, has been a call to celebration.
11: Roland Griffiths died a few weeks ago, at the age of 77. So today we're revisiting my conversation with him from earlier this year. We started by talking about when Griffiths was at the top of his field of psychopharmacology. He was known for studying the risks of mood-altering drugs and sleeping medication. But then he really got into meditation and that led him to ask some big questions about the spiritual powers of our minds
7: it felt almost like a midlife crisis of sorts uh, because i became disinterested or, or much less interested in what i was known for what i what i was being paid to do i'm at johns hopkins among first-class scientists, most of whom are very reductionistic, called a materialistic worldview. And mm. I remember going to some meetings and people say, well, what's up? And I said, oh, you know, I've gotten really interested in in meditation. And I'd start to say something, and their eyes would glaze over and like that. It couldn't be less interesting <laughs> uh, to them. Was so that disheartening I, it, to you? Uh Because you ultimately
11: needed kind of their peer support.
7: Well, I wasn't going to get it there. (laughs) Uh
11: So you started working a lot with um, psilocybin. Can you explain in layman's terms what that is?
7: Yeah. So uh, psilocybin is one of these classic psychedelic drugs. Uh, This comes from psilocybin containing mushrooms, and psilocybin's been used... Hundreds to thousands of years with indigenous cultures for these ceremonial healings or sacramental or religious uh, kinds of uh, experiences. Yeah. You know,
11: trips. Do you say that? Do you use the expression trips?
7: Trip? No. Oh, uh, you don't? Okay. No, no. Because it just has all of that association, the baggage from the 1960s.
11: That was not your scene that was
7: it? absolutely not my scene yeah
11: what do you call it experience
7: yeah i would call it uh, an experience yeah a psychedelic experience yeah. okay
11: you were running these trials explicitly on cancer patients at some point to see how the psilocybin the psychedelics would affect them
2: that
7: in fact was our first therapeutic trial that we ran with uh, psychedelics and i can tell you where i sat with that and that was feeling very cautious about what would an experience of this sort do to someone who's facing the most significant existential threat that they can and that is their own their own demise and as it turns out the effects were nothing short of astonishing in this cohort of people who met criteria for clinically significant depression or anxiety, uh, with a single dose of psilocybin under these kinds of supported conditions, anxiety and depression dropped immediately and markedly Mm. and enduringly, that was the most important feature. So in that study, we followed people up at six months and they remained with very low symptom profiles.
11: Can you articulate what they said to you about how did that alleviate their anxiety?
7: I do recall one man who had the psilocybin experience and came to I'm now hesitant to give this example, uh, but uh, but I will. He came to believe in the reality of God. But what was so interesting is that this changed his whole frame of reference. He, he was in considerable pain, and that pain receded in importance. Uh, but I think what was most moving about that is there was something about the change in the very nature of his being that was absolutely inspiring and awe-taking to his caretakers. And it wasn't that he was filled with spiritual language, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, God's going to save me. No, it was an acceptance for his condition and a reassurance to the people he loved most that everything was okay, everything was as it should be, mm-hmm. and they felt uplifted by that.
11: If I may ask, why were you reticent to share that example?
7: It's <laughs> uh, it's the God language. Uh,
11: mm-hmm. Well, we're all sort of limited by our language right? Maybe some people use the word God because we don't know what other words to ascribe to these certain kind of ideas or experiences.
7: I think think that's precisely it. I mean, for, for me personally, we live in the midst of this astonishing mystery, and we don't have a coherent scientific explanation of what's going on. The thing that we understand best about our experience of sentience is that we are aware that we're aware, and that we do have an interiority, and it's only uniquely us as the individual who's experiencing that that can affirm that.
11: You have found yourself on the other side of this whole thing (laughs) as someone who is contemplating these very existential questions with new urgency.
7: Yeah. I went in for a screening colonoscopy, thinking myself to be completely healthy, uh, taking very good care of myself and coming out with, as it turns out, a stage four cancer colon diagnosis. And so that's... (laughs) that's led me into this deep contemplation about uh, what's going on here. And um, I think I've been served very well by my long-term practice of meditation, being able Mm -hmm. to call out and see where my mind is going and Mm -hmm. see rabbit holes of dark emotions or thoughts uh, that would surely bring on nothing but misery were right, I to inhabit them, be them fear, anxiety, you know, denial, resentment. I mean, there's a, a, a depression there are any number of ways one could go that would be nothing but miserable. But for me, the diagnosis as unlikely as it seems, it has been a call to celebration. And my wife and I have been in that mode in spite of and you know, multiple surgeries and uh, and all of the uh, potentially unpleasant occurrences that emerge from treatment of through the medical system and the chemotherapy and and stuff like that
11: it's a hard reality it's like a duality to try to um we we get wrapped up in the, in in like war language with cancer but on the one hand fight the cancer right, right. and do the surgeries and the treatments but then accepting the cancer at the yeah. same time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Are, Do those two things feel in conflict for you?
7: Not at all. Yeah. So the very first time I went into chemotherapy, I got a text message from my daughter, whom I love very much, and she writes, "Dad, kick cancer's ass." <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's the fight mode, right? And right. And that, or depression, anxiety, or fear. I mean, I've chosen. That's not where I want to live. I don't want to be in battle with my with my body yeah. and I don't want to be in fear or anxiety or denial or resentment. I mean
11: wh- why? Do you plan to take psilocybin at any point?
7: No, I initially I actually didn't want to touch a psychedelic um because I was concerned it would somehow altered the state of- Sabotage
11: in. this this yeah. very healthy, appreciative yeah. mental I, clarity you had. Yeah, right. Huh.
7: And so there actually came a point where I thought, I wonder if I'm defending against something here. I wonder if my reason for refusing to take a psychedelic is that I'm masking something over, that, that uh, there's a skeleton in my closet here, and I'm saying I'm joyful, and I have all this aqua and everything is beautiful, you know, so I decided, okay, so I'll take a dose of psychedelic and do that very inquiry. Yeah, uh, it was LSD. And how'd it uh, go? <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Did it? Yeah, I address the cancer as other. And, and in general, I don't think it's it's wise to reify anything in mind as anything other than an object of mind. But in this case, I addressed the cancer itself and said, Okay, what's going on here? And the answer there, there was no answer, actually.
11: <laughs>
7: mm-hmm. uh, cancer didn't didn't cancer answer didn't me. talk back. Cancer yeah. didn't say it <laughs> Didn't have an answer. a answer. thing. And so then, <laughs> then I got into dialogue and said, Well, you know, I've considered you a blessing. I, I actually really respect everything that's occurred to me since mm-hmm. this diagnosis. You know, and I'm I truly am grateful for the for the diagnosis. I said, but but do you have to kill me? <laughs> Whoa. And
11: was <laughs> there an answer to that one?
7: Yeah, yeah. <sighs> the answer was um yeah, you're gonna die. Uh but uh this is as it should be. There's a there's a deeper there's a deeper meaning, there's a deeper purpose. To this, and you should continue to do exactly what you're doing. And I felt implied by that that I should speak out more broadly about what I was g- going through, because I've been I've been reluctant to do so. I've done some. Then I said, now I'm talking to cancer. I said, but okay, so I have something to say here. How about giving me some more time?
11: I like that you went for the follow-up. I like I went, that you pressed. I went to the follow-up. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you get the opportunity? Yeah.
7: <laughs> but I got radio silence. <laughs> it didn't answer. No. Uh, but that was it. And you know, who knows? Uh, was I dialoguing with the cancer? No. That doesn't fit within my worldview. Some people would say say I was. But it was deeply affirming to what I was doing. And actually after it validated that validated
11: ex- how you felt you were not walking only did it, through yeah, the process.
7: Not only did it validate it, it uh it felt like an empowerment to speak up about it in a way that I had to get this message
11: out. I so appreciate you talking with me and having such an honest conversation about all of these things. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you, Rachel. My parting invitation is... Please. Yeah, is to celebrate. I mean, I'm inviting you to celebrate what I'm celebrating, and that is this experience of the miracle of where we find ourselves. And you needn't have a terminal diagnosis to lean much more fully into that than you possibly could leave. And I promise you it's worth it. <laughs>
11: Dr. Roland Griffiths, the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, he died on...